Welcome to Building Better. This is Jared Silliker. On this episode, we bring you the fascinating world of commercial refrigeration. That's right. Keeping your ice cream and tater tots frozen is a source of potent greenhouse gas emissions that is often underappreciated. We've got two guests on the show to discuss how many grocery operators are going retro and using carbon dioxide as a natural refrigerant. The emission savings are off the charts, but there are still plenty of challenges. Danielle Wright is a wealth of knowledge on this topic and is working with stakeholders across North America to encourage the transition away from refrigerants that contribute to our climate emergency. And John Gaines is on the ground in Seattle installing these new refrigeration systems. All right, welcome aboard. An exciting topic today, um, I think. Uh, commercial refrigeration, something a lot of you listeners probably interact with every day, but might not think about every day. One stat that I like, uh, Project Drawdown is a great um, a great project that lists commercial refrigeration as the number one climate change solution. Um, that's sort of the, the most potential to reduce uh, carbon emissions. Um, so, and this is a, this is a specialty of Danielle's uh, as the executive director of the North American Sustainable Refrigeration Council. Um, what, um, yeah, Danielle, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do on a, on a daily basis and, and why this topic is so exciting. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, so just like you said, uh, most everybody has interacted with refrigerants. Uh, most commonly, you know, what I think of is when you walk into your lo- local grocery store, it's what's keeping your food cold, you know, when you're at home or in your car with your air conditioner or your fridge at home. Uh, and what most people don't realize is that these refrigerants, uh, known as hydrofluorocarbons or HFCs, um, they're actually super greenhouse gases. And pound for pound, they uh, trap thousands of times more heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. And they're also the fastest growing greenhouse gas globally. This has to do with kind of the the global demand for cooling, um, growing, especially in developing countries. Um, And so, you know, uh, basically they're, they're the worst greenhouse gas that nobody's ever heard of. Mm-hmm. And and can you uh, describe sort of how they're um, how they're released? You know, we we typically think of uh, you know fossil fuel burning fossil fuels. We're releasing CO two into the atmosphere. It's uh, it's warming the planet. What's the? Can you describe the mechanism for refrigerants? Uh, yeah. No. And this is. Uh... Really important, actually, when we're talking about grocery stores, which is what I focus on and what John focuses on here, um, because uh, you know, really, the the reason these are being released into the atmosphere is because uh, major supermarket systems, refrigeration systems, are inherently leaky. It's been a, a problem for a, a long time, much longer than HFCs have even been around for. Um, and they are leaking uh, you know, approximately 25% of their charge in a year. And this is significant because they also contain 
know, more uh, pounds of refrigerant than any of the other types of uh, refrigerant end uses. So when I'm talking about your fridge at home or your air conditioner, you know, that's not leaking on an annual basis, or it shouldn't be. Otherwise, you should replace it and get a refund. But uh, your supermarket, that's a whole nother story. And so here we're dealing with, you know, a network of complex components being uh, piped together, you know, miles and miles of copper piping uh, that you don't see as the person shopping at the grocery store, but that, you know, is is critical both to keeping the food cold, um, but also a big problem in terms of it being released into the atmosphere. You know, I'll say one more thing is that this isn't the first time that we've had a problem with refrigerants. Um, so you may remember, you know, ozone depleting refrigerants were something that were was targeted back in the sure. 80s and 90s. And um, the reason HFCs have become such a big problem is because they actually replaced those ozone depleting refrigerants. So, you know, we also say we traded one environmental disaster for another because even though we <laughs> were successful in getting rid of the ozone depleting refrigerants, uh, what we traded them for was a refrigerant that has a uh, big impact on climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so John does get to see some of those pipes. Um, John is uh, Director of Construction and Facilities at PCC Community Markets, uh, which, uh, full disclosure, one of my clients, uh, John and I have gotten to work on some great uh, living building challenge work for some of their new stores. Um, but uh, but John gets to deal with lots more and sort of like you know figure out how to <clears throat> how to build and maintain these things. John, have you have you ever seen a leaking uh, refrigerants? I haven't actually seen it at happening, but you know we are aware of it because we do we do track it. You know we make sure that we track all the refrigerants that uh, are lost from our systems and report that. Um, you know uh, we've had you know a couple of times when. Uh, with our CO2 systems where we've lost all the charge in our, in our system. Cause it, it, you know, it, of course it turns into a gas at room temperature and pressure. And so it's a little harder to contain than most conventional refrigerants. So when you do have a leak, it's, it's usually catastrophic, but the, the good side of that is that, you know, it, it's got the greenhouse gas potential of, of one cause it is, it is CO2. So, um, you know, it does the least amount of harm. Um, so yeah, we, we have seen the uh, you know the the consequences of, of leaks and and are aware of it. You know, hopefully not on a too regular basis, but um, it's definitely something we look we look for and impacts our business. Danielle, do you do you have any stats on the uh, average um, refrigerant loss, or I don't, I don't know how that's reported, but. Yeah, so as John mentioned, it is something that um, most supermarkets are tracking. They should be tracking because they have to report on it uh, at a federal level and in some cases at a state level. Uh, the The U.S. EPA runs a program called the Green Chill Program that aims at you know helping supermarket retailers reduce their leak rates. Uh, this has been going on for for over ten years now. And um, they collect data and also, you know, leverage the data that's reported to them. And their estimate is that um, you know, the average leak rate is around 25% uh, 
times, if you multiply that times the average pounds of refrigerant of all supermarkets, and this is, you you have to take in mind or keep in mind that this is everything from a really, you know, large like Walmart type supermarket down to a more local, uh, you know, uh, grocery store. And uh, the average number of pounds is 3,500 pounds. And so if you multiply, you know, 25% of 3,500 pounds times the uh, global warming potential of that HFC refrigerant that's most commonly used. So here we think of, um, you know, 404A, for instance, has a global warming potential of almost 4,000. Compare that with what John said about CO2, which has a global warming potential of one. Um, so it's you know, 4,000 times more impactful on, on climate change and global warming. And, uh, and you multiply all that out and you get about um, 70 million tons of CO2 equivalent um, per year. So wow. that's equivalent, you know, if 70 million, I such a big number, you don't even know how to place it. Um, you know, it's equivalent to powering uh, approximately 12 million households a year, the electricity used by 12 million households. And that is about equivalent to the number of households in the state of California, just to place that number Whoa. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And that's just from the leaks. So if you think about over the lifetime of the system, which is, you know, some people say 15 years, but you hear stories of systems running a whole lot longer than that, um, you know, adds up mm-hmm. over those years. Right. right. And then it, ha- and then they have to be decommissioned in some fashion as well when their the life does run out. So you've got, uh, got that refrigerant to be dealt with. Yeah, the thing that makes it difficult here is that, you know, in my experience, and John, you can speak to this, um, you know, it's very rare that a whole system gets decommissioned at once. What ends up happening is that um, there's components of the system that are replaced over time. Um, You know, so one year you might replace the refrigerated cases, another year you might replace some compressors or the condenser, upgrade the piping. Um, You never really replace everything at once because that means most likely then you have to shut down the store, which is just, (laughs) you know, a non-negotiable when you're talking with um, retailers. And so um, the thing that makes it tough about getting out of HFCs, you know, when I was talking about the ozone depleting refrigerants, that was relatively easy. I'm not going to say it was, you know, a piece of cake because it wasn't. And some retailers are still dealing with getting out of R22, which is the predominant refrigerant that was used that has the um, ozone depleting uh, properties. But they could replace, they could basically take out that uh, R22 gas and replace it with an HFC gas. So it's a, what we call a drop-in solution. Um, when you're talking about going to natural refrigerants, which is um, the technology you know that my organization is promoting, um, you know we're talking about replacing entire systems and entire pieces of equipment, um, which is just you know, like I said, it's a, um, a deal breaker when it comes to replacing the whole system because you're not going to shut down your store and, and lose you know the revenue for however many days it takes to. Um, build that new system. And so it's it's really putting retailers in a very uh, tricky position when they want to look at moving away from HFCs. It's not so simple anymore. It's just dropping in a new gas. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, the opportunities in an existing store to go ahead and swap out the whole system are very, very few and far between. So, you know, we, we've concentrated on going ahead and, and instituting, you know, natural refrigerants in all of our new stores, which makes it it possible. Um, yeah, I can't, you know, it's really hard, tough to imagine a situation where, you know, you, you could go ahead and swap out a system with a natural refrigerant. And it's been done, but it's like, it is technically challenging. It's sometimes like there's not even space to do it. Like in the example that I've seen, they actually went in and built a rack side by side. And then one day flipped the switch and went to the new rack, but you need the space in your mechanical room. You need a ton of planning. I mean, I don't even want to know how much more it costs um, to do something like that. On top of it, you're already replaced, you know, paying for this um, huge system, which isn't like, you know, you or I replacing our fridge at home. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a million dollars plus um, for this type of, of um, capital equipment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there, all the different, all the components of the refrigeration system need to be changed out at once. And you've got the rack, you've got, you know, the, the piping and you've got the cases and, you know, and the uh, cooling tower as well or, or condensers. I mean, there are all these different parts that would need to be swapped out, you know, if you're going from conventional refrigerant to, uh, to a natural refrigerant. Um, they all need to be swapped out at the same time to keep your business open. Yeah. And, and Jared, sorry to jump in. I, I realized we kind of took a step forward because we would jump, jumped right into natural refrigerants. So i um, happy to just yeah, give, all good. Yeah, give us a, a quick background on that. So, um, you know, I want to be clear here. Natural refrigerants aren't the only option. There are other options uh, that that retailers can look at. But um, the thing that's unique about natural refrigerants and here I'm talking about ammonia, uh, carbon dioxide and propane are the main ones um, that we're focused on here. Um, you know, these are actually the the original refrigerants from when uh, refrigeration systems were first invented, and uh, we moved away from those for very good reasons. Propane is flammable, ammonia is toxic, um, <laughs> CO two you know it, it operates at very high pressures, which can be very dangerous if not handled properly. Um, so there was very good reasons to move away from the quote unquote, you know, naturally occurring refrigerants that can't be patented. You know, they have um, negligible impact on the climate, but they had very undesirable qualities. And so you um, moving towards synthetic refrigerants, um, you know, these were the, the CFCs and the HCFCs that had the ozone depleting properties. Um, you know, the, then there's a problem with those. Okay, we move to HFCs, you know, issue with the climate. Now there's these interim solutions. So they're not as bad in terms of global warming potential as um, the, the HFCs. They're blends, they're um, hydrolefin, uh, that, that hydrofluoroolefins that um, have better global warming potential. The problem when we look at those is that, and we can get to this when we talk about policy, but uh, looking out ahead, it's very likely those will be, uh, you know, phased out as well. So a lot of retailers are jumping to what they consider the future-proof solution in terms of regulations, and that gets us back to square one, natural refrigerants. Back where we began. Back, back to the beginning. <laughs> and some of those concerns have been addressed, like, 
We have very high um, safety standards now that um, can deal with the toxicity of ammonia um, and the flammability of propane. CO2, I mean, we can get to this in a second because you already kind of hinted at this, but um, it still operates under very high pressures, not necessarily dangerous, but just has some still undesirable qualities or or issues we need to work out. Um, And so that's part of what my organization focuses on. You know, we're not here to say that uh, natural refrigerants are rosy, rosy and everything's fine. Let's just adopt them. Um, There's real challenges with this. And so uh, in order to overcome those challenges, our, our goal or our strategy is to work together with the supermarket industry to address those challenges. Yeah. And I think uh, in in uh, chatting with you, uh, emailing with you, you had quite a uh, impressive stat about the, the percent that have uh, have moved to natural refrigerants. And is it is it still something like one or two percent? Oh, yeah. Whopping the two percent, less than two percent. <laughs> And and that's not including, there are a number of retailers that use like a hybrid. So they'll use mm-hmm. CO2, you know, um, as a secondary fluid with a HFC as the primary. But Got what it. I'm talking about is, I guess, what we would consider HFC-free systems. And that's really what's going to help you get to that, you know, regulatory compliance or future-proof state. Um, And so, like John said, what we're seeing is retailers are making natural refrigerants standard in new stores. And, you know, I don't know about you, John, I'm hearing that there's new store growth is pretty flat. And and really what we're dealing with here is the approximately 38,000 supermarkets that exist today. Yeah, it's tough for me to talk about the industry as a whole, Um, but I know that PCC is, is expanding and growing, we see a um, you know market in our sector uh, that allows for growth, and so you know we're we're building out, and we see that as a again you know just like you said a real opportunity to go ahead and build um, stores of natural refrigerants. There is a certain amount of saturation in the market, which um, you know which which means that getting natural refrigerants uh, out there and, and utilized in a wider uh, um, capacity is. Is a is a difficult uh, difficult road to hoe or task to to follow through with? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've outlined a, a bunch of these, you know, cost up op- cost implications, operationally challenging in a in an existing store. Um, John, how even from a new store perspective, you know how how did that decision sort of come to come to pass? Um, initially like let's let's change this up we've got some new stores let's let's uh let's go the co2 route um well i think that you know it's it's part of our our you know corporate mission to kind of you know look at the triple bottom line of of everything we do you know how we operate our business and certainly our new stores are part of that yeah it's certainly part of our company mission to go ahead and do that and then also you know i think it makes sense uh to a large degree for the the fact that you're future-proofing your stores, you know, you're not, you're not, because we do see in our older stores that, you know, some of the older refrigerants are being, you know, phased out and, you know, we've had to go and adapt them to some of the newer refrigerants. And, um, you know, when those get phased out, then we're going to be forced into a pretty unpleasant and expensive proposition. So, um, 
you know, the future proofing and, and just being part of our, our corporate mission. Um, you know, that's, that's what made it kind of the clear choice for us. And, you know, it, it also, it, it does a lot of good in that it helps to um, develop the market for natural refrigerants and the, um, the technology. So, you know, we're, we're kind of um, helping to, to push those boundaries and, and move stuff forward um, to make it, you know, more dependable and less expensive for, you know, uh, the industry as a whole. And how, how did that go on sort of the design and construction side of things? Since obviously there's not many of these systems out there. So, you know, finding the right um, team seems like one thing, but then, you know, were there any sort of big challenges in, you know, Hey, we got to, got to design and build this new, this new thing. You know, as far from a, from a design standpoint um, and how it works with a standard grocery store, you know, they're not, they're not too many differences we need to think about. I mean, you know, one of the only things that, that we've noticed is that, you know, your, your cooling tower, your condenser needs to be a little bit bigger than usual. Um, your condensing water has to be, you know, lower than what the normal temperature is for HVAC systems. And we found that to be true in, in things like the Rainier Square project. Um, you know, so that was the only kind of design constraint we came up against. And, you know, I think that the other part of it is, is finding a good partner. Um, you know, we certainly went out there um, and, and made our, our the decision with our design build mechanical engineer or contractor. Um, you know, we, we talked to them about it at length and, you know, made sure it was something that you know, they, they felt comfortable with and they could support and, um, you know, something that we could work for us into the future. So, uh, that was a big part of it. And I think you, you hinted at it, but maybe just to put a point on it, that probably some building typologies, um, or just situations aren't, aren't going to work for natural refrigerants, even in a new construction. Um, PCC certainly is in a handful of different typologies, you know, freestanding kind of mid-rise with apartments, uh, but then in some high-rise uh, at the base of some high-rise buildings too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, we experienced this both in, you know, our Bellevue location, our downtown location, you know, it was the, the building systems uh, for condenser water that we tied into um, that, you know, needed to be modified and we were able to do that for Bellevue, but not for downtown. You know, the landlord wasn't willing to work with us in that case. Danielle, what, anything else on kind of this trajectory of, you know, uh, operators, you know, going the natural refrigerant route? Um, is it, is it just kind of onesie twosie as you go, or are you, are there any other big jumps, um, based on, market trends? Well, I would say um, there's going to have to be a big jump here is is what we're all anticipating. And that has to do with um, regulations that are coming at the, the federal level that I, I know we're going to have time to talk about. But um, something I want to point out that, that's been lacking here and the reason why we see such low adoption rates uh, of natural refrigerants in the U.S., it, it's really unique to the U.S. because, um, you know, first of all, if we look globally and especially in, in Europe and Asia, 
Um, there's much higher adoption rates of natural refrigerant systems across a, a wide variety of architectures and typologies, like you mentioned. Um, and and there, you know, natural refrigerants are the standard. And so when you're talking mm-hmm. about um, innovations in refrigeration technology, they're happening within the natural refrigerant space. So the, the, the world has made this shift. And, and what's driven that shift has been really aggressive policy um, and, and regulations. And, and that comes actually as a add-on to what I was talking to about before with ozone depleting refrigerants and um, you know our, our success in transitioning out of those refrigerants was um, due to uh, international treaty, the Montreal Protocol that was adopted on a global level. you know it's the most it's the most effective or most successful, international sure. treaty period, not even within the environmental world. Um, yep. That's how much, you know, um, support it had and if impact. And so the add-on there, the amendment that was made is known as the Kigali Amendment, um, takes that same mechanism to phase out, that it did to phase out ozone depleting refrigerants and um, applies that to HFCs. So uh, the Kigali Amendment, in effect, has a, a phase-down schedule for HFCs. Mm-hmm. And um, we, you know, as the U.S., are far behind where the rest of the world is because we haven't been um, following that phase-down schedule until now. So uh, with that, you know, I want to <laughs> say that, that, yes, adoption rates are, are very low, 1% to 2%, but that's about to change in a very big way. And um, where we're seeing that first is actually at the state level. And so what happened in sort of this vacuum and lack of uh, movement on the federal level is that um, states took charge. So, you know, um, basically they picked up where the federal government had left off. And because of their own greenhouse gas emissions reduction goals, um, you know, and, and if you look at any any major greenhouse gas or carbon emissions reduction goal has to include HFCs. That's just the the amount of impact they have, and and really the the biggest they're the biggest bang for the buck in terms of ways to impact overall carbon footprint and and reduce emissions. So uh, states, you know, have started looking at HFCs. Um, you know, four years ago. And one of the states that's probably farthest ahead here is California. And they've made it a requirement for all new stores to use natural refrigerants. And they've also uh, uh, put a a pretty strict uh, uh, phase down target for existing stores. So if you're in Cal, if you're doing business in California and you're a grocery store, you know, right now your only option for new stores is to build natural refrigerant-based stores. And you're looking at touching quite a few of your existing stores. And um, you know, there's there's strategies and things that are um, being developed right now on how to do that most cost effectively. You know, every major retailer that we work with is looking at this. Um, but it's something that that will very likely be expanded at the federal level and and touch um, every retailer, large and small. And how fast is that phase down for existing stores in California? So in California, the way they're looking at it, and and by the way, I should mention that through the rulemaking process and developing this regulation, 
um, NASRC, our organization, played a really key role because um, you know we work with many major retailers, small retailers, regional retailers, and we actually we had a group um, of retailers that worked you know together to develop an alternative proposal to the one that um, the California Air Resources Board initially. Um, put forward. And we were able to play a key role in helping to negotiate to come up with a a rulemaking or a regulation that would achieve California's goals in terms of total HFC reduction, emissions reduction, um, but also do it in a way that was good for business or, or that worked with the grocery business model. You know, like we said before, you can't just go ripping out the existing systems and, and putting in new ones. Um, you know, an, an analogy we've used in the industry, it's like thinking about it in terms of a, a gas car versus an electric car. If you've got a perfectly mm-hmm. good car at home, there's really no amount of money that can make you just throw away that car or donate that car and go buy a Tesla unless they're going to give it to you for free. Right. Um, Right. And so we're basically asking retailers to throw away their perfectly good systems and put in what is kind of the Tesla of the industry in terms of it's, it's at a premium uh, cost for sure. Um, So, so the way we looked at it in California, what the, the kind of agreement or um, you know, uh, the, the, the way we proposed it was that um, a, a retailer could look at their chain as a whole and set a target for an average GWP. Um, and so the, okay. the target in California is 1,400. So as a whole, if you have 20 or more stores, you have to um, reduce your average by, uh, you know, from where you are today to below 1400. And, and that's very doable because there are options on the market today that would allow you to do a a gas, you know, drop in solution. Or what you could do is take a small portion of your stores and um, convert those transition them partially. Um, You know, here we get into some issues because uh, the US just doesn't have the same technologies available on the market as you see in Europe. Um, so the options are more limited here. Um, they're even more limited in terms of what you can get. You know, John mentioned his CO2 system. There, there's so many variations of of um, CO2 transcritical systems in Europe and components that aren't available here. Um, and so that that's a challenge that we're working on now. And, um, you know, part of the equation when it comes to making these solutions uh, more feasible from a business perspective. Mm. And is that going to take sort of a big, a big retailer to, to, you know, jump in and demand those in the U S to get them here or, or can we get them? It just takes a lot of, you know, like longer weed time. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, ultimately, you know, what we're stuck in here is this um, negative self-fulfilling cycle of low demand and um, low economies of scale. And so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, without the demand, you kind of need one of those things to to get the cycle moving. You need to, uh, you know, inject something into the cycle. And, um, you know, the way that we see this happening is basically, you know, there's three levers. Um so we could reduce costs, 
Um, and here we're talking about incentives and, and there's some interesting things going on at the utility level um, that pair up, you know, GWP with uh, energy efficiency incentives. Um, there's some interesting things happening at the state level. And, and here I'm talking about California first, but they're kind of a, a model or a blueprint for other states to follow. Um, and then at a national level, you know, there's things that we've seen in Europe work really well, like tax credits. Um, there's also the, the carbon offset market that we're looking at and testing out um, whether or not that's a viable option. Um, and so, you know, bringing down those first costs can help spur demand. Um, but the other piece of the puzzle, you know, we need uh, we need the technologies to come to market. And you brought up a great point saying that, you know, could one bigger retailer do this? And actually, in our experience, like the, the biggest retailer in the world has tried to do this and hasn't been successful. And, um, you know, that's yeah. one of the reasons why our organization exists is because, um, a lot of them have said, you know, it's it's like we tried to do this on our own. We couldn't. Um, the reason why we need an organization like NASRC is because we can actually leverage the collective bargaining power um, or collective um, demand uh, for of all the retailers to send a strong enough market signal to actually get something done. And so um, a good example of this, you know, recently um, uh, one type of technology that's not available here but is common in, in Europe is a CO2 condensing unit. And here, um, this has particular uses. So I'm not talking about, you know, powering an entire store because it, it's really meant for a smaller um, load. But, you know, uh, typically supermarkets or, sorry, grocery stores, corner stores are mu much more um uh, popular in Europe, much smaller format stores. And um, the sure. thing that's happening in the U.S. that would make CO2 condensing units really ideal, and, and John, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, is um, we've seen a huge increase in, in capacity, uh, the need for capacity in grocery stores. And here, you know, it's everything from the pandemic driving more of these uh, delivery um, need for delivery or pickup options. And so we're talking about, you know, grocers building a small uh, walk-in to basically keep all of the delivery and, and pickup items in, um, but also just general like increase in capacity because more people are shopping at stores because they're not going to restaurants. I mean, there is a little bit of a shift. I mean, you know, different retailers are going to see it in different amounts, but a shift towards, you know, buying fresh and cooking at home, you know, during the pandemic. Um, we haven't had experience with the kind of the uh, the uh, storage for pickup, so we're we're not offering that yet, but that's coming. Um, and we were thinking about what type of uh, refrigeration needs we'd have there. Um, but you know, just the, the general capacity that we have is is, is pretty large um, in our stores. I think it's you know um, we're about one third. You know, if you think about cooling capacity, we're about one third um, kind of HVAC and two thirds refrigeration um, in kind of our ratio. So that you know, our refrigeration needs are a lot greater than our you know our, our air conditioning needs. So um, yeah, we we see a little bit of a, a movement that way. And I can definitely um, you know see how you know with the with grocery stores uh, becoming more popular because of you know the conditions of the pandemic and an added need for a drop ship area, you know, uh, refrigeration demand growing. 
Yeah. The, so what we're hearing from a lot of our retailers, and, and John, I'm curious if you've looked at this at all, is one strategy as well is not to look at replacing the entire system, um, but to modularly transition or um, migrate away from the existing rack. And the way you might do that is, you know, let's say you need to replace your low temp cases and um, your options are you could pull that line off the rack, um, that section group off the rack, and you could uh, put it either as a, a stand like self-contained uh, propane cases, a lineup of those, or you could put it on a single you know, CO2 condensing unit. And that would either be, you know, um, either connected up on the roof or maybe back in the mechanical room. So, so that's year one project, right? Year two, okay, maybe you're replacing some of your um, walk-in boxes. And again, a, a condensing unit here or there uh, might help you then wean off that rack a little bit more until you get to a place where, okay, actually you really don't have that much load on the rack and now you can um, afford or you can replace the entire thing with with something else, you know. So there's this kind of like hybrid approach that a lot of folks are talking about and trying to figure out what can work there. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, we thought about the self-contained propane units as being an, an viable option and are quite interested in those. Um, you know, we're, we're looking into that, um, where we do find a need for, you know, additional refrigeration capacity. Um, the other, the other thing, though, that strikes me is that, you know, if you double up on your, your racks and kind of create two parallel systems, the, the trouble that we have is, is space constraint and just, you know, oftentimes, you know, a lot of these systems are shoehorned into smaller spaces just so you can dedicate more of it towards grocery and to employees and things like that. So that's that's the issue I see there. I mean, I have heard where, you know, if you're really smart and you really plan ahead, you're thinking about these things and you are constructing additional space adjacent to your existing rack um, and reserving that for future technology so that you can swap out, you can build a rack in place and then come back in at a later time and uh, and swap it out. And so that's been one strategy we, we thought about, but, um, you know, We've never pulled the trigger um, because what we thought and what our consultants are telling us is that, you know, that you oftentimes have um, you know, the possibility of replacing or repairing an existing rack where it is in place, you know, the component wise, rather than shifting over to a new. Mm. But, you know, we never thought about it in the capacity of, you know, shifting types of refrigerant. So that, that would be another way you could you could look at it. The thing you bring up about um, propane—that's another great example of a, a lack uh, in terms of technology. And um, what we have here in the states is propane self-contained units with a much lower charge of propane that's allowable according, according to um, codes and standards. And uh, what we see in Europe and what was just recently approved is essentially, you know, almost. Uh, tripling of the charge limit, which allows for much greater cooling capacity and and serves um, a broader need. Um, you know, previously, you know, I, I'm sure if John, if you've looked at this, um, you're talking about putting in multiple circuits in one case lineup, which translates to higher costs and, and higher energy use. Um, and so that's not really a viable solution uh, or not a, an attractive one, at least. So 
what these larger charge limits will allow. And they have been approved at a um, the UL kind of safety standard level, and now they're making their way through um, other uh, standards, ASHRAE needs to approve it, and um, the building codes, most importantly, need to approve it. But once that happens and, and you're able to actually you know, purchase those units, it'll be much more um, economically viable to look at that system type than it is right now. So I know a lot of retailers that are holding out, uh, waiting for those self-contained units with the higher charge limit to become available. Yeah, I, we spoke about propane uh, as a, a possible system with our uh, our uh, contractor, and they said they'd installed a, uh, a system down in California with a with a charge about the size of a you know an outdoor barbecue um, yeah. uh, grill uh, container, and they said that they could not get buy off from the fire department for it. And so, yeah, we definitely there needs to be a, an overhaul of what the regulations are for it. Absolutely. Like the fire department all even at that level was it was too high. Yeah, even at the the outdoor, you know, propane uh backyard barbecue propane level was too high. Mm. You know, and, and it's just, you know, it's familiarity with the system. People don't know what it is or what it does. And, you know, there was the appreh- apprehension and erring on the side of caution by, you know, the fire department. Mm. And that happens yeah. with CO2 by the way. We get calls all the time the local you know, authority having jurisdiction will come in and say, oh, you can't, we're not going to sign off on this because um, you can't store CO2 on the roof. That's like, why not? <laughs> What's the problem? And it's not being stored. It's being used as part of the refrigeration system. So um, yeah, there's right. some really outdated building codes. And and that's a whole new world to me. I, I'm just learning about it as we're going through this process. And um, I didn't appreciate, you know, kind of how long it could take. So folks that do this on a day-to-day basis, they're talking like three to five years from now. Like we don't okay. have three to five years. We need these <laughs> these technologies now. Um, so so that's why, you know, when we, and then when we look at things like CO2 condensing units, well, there's no codes and standards restriction, but there's, um, there's some gap in the market because, you know, um, either the, the demand's not being... Uh, pronounced or, or uh, I guess, uh, you know, explained and the manufacturers are not bringing, reacting to that demand signal and bringing forward products. Um, so, you know, something we did recently was we took a, a survey of all of the largest manufacturers, sorry, largest retailers that we work with and, um, you know, kind of characterized what the market demand really looked like in terms of capacity they needed and, um, the specific end uses they were looking to fulfill. Um, and we put that out there and it's like crickets. We haven't heard, hmm. nobody's come forward. There's such a huge opportunity for someone who wants to come come in and, and um, fulfill this market need um, that hasn't yet. So it's, it's, it's a really yeah. interesting situation. And you know, someday someone will analyze it far away from now and, and understand why it is that we're so different from Europe. But, um, you know, right now that the reality is retailers are not prepared to make the transition away from HFCs and it's going to happen pretty fast. Yeah. It's funny and frustrating. You know, you, you see some of these like code and, and enforcement issues across, you know, be it rooftop solar or, um, water reuse and gray water and, you know, sort of, you've got, 
you've got those cultures of public safety, health elements that are, you know, long standing that, you know, all of a sudden you have a disruptive technology, which might not even be that complicated. Like, you know, we, we want to put in, you know, the right piping so that we can reuse this water for non-potable uses. And, uh, but it's, it just sort of disrupts their way of thinking and, and it, it takes a while to like implement those new, um, codes and especially when you're dealing with something like fire departments uh, you know sort of classic uh case of you know they have they have their uh their rules of thumb that they're not not going to deviate from yeah well and that's where i think information sharing is so important here because this is new territory it's the wild wild sure. west here to uh you know yep. the, it's i think i know the system that john was talking about down in california and you know they had to pull some really last minute strings to open up that store and one of the weird things they ended up doing or agreeing on was like painting the roof a certain color um to to sort of <laughs> i don't know if it's less flammable that way or what but um you know that then wow. if they could put that together and, and they have by the way this particular retailer is pretty open and sharing information but um if there was a way to like access you know instances where where yeah there was a trouble with a, a code official or fire department and what did they do? What what kind of evidence did they share? And and that way the retailers amongst themselves could be more prepared. You know, that's something we're we're trying to find the best forum for. But um, you know, it's so important to be able to share those experiences and and help each other out. Yeah. Danielle, how about any any crystal ball on the federal side? You know, you talked about California leading the way. I mean, that sounds impressive in terms of at least those goals and targets, you know, we're going to you know, require it on new construction and we've got it. We at least have a plan on, on existing buildings and you sort of, you know, you level playing field across a large state. Uh, but it, it strikes me that there's, or you kind of alluded to at some point, federal guidelines kind of expand that so that we really level the playing field. And of course you have national retailers, you know, that, that could, if, if that were the case, could standardize their operations. So I don't know, do you, do you see anything coming or? Yeah. So um, what, what happened at the very tail end of 2020 uh, was, and actually under the previous administration, um, there was a, a legislation approved and it was a larger part of a larger COVID relief package, but um, the AIM Act, the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act, um, effectively uh, enacts a, a phase down of HFCs and mirrors the phase down schedule of the Kigali Amendment. So we have not yet ratified Kigali. Technically, we're expected to at any moment. But um, we have, in terms of, of following the phase down, we have enacted um, the goals of the phase down. And so where that phase down takes us ultimately is a 85% reduction in the HFC emissions. And the, the baseline here we're talking about is they're looking at 2011 to 2013 as our kind of baseline time period um, and, and reducing that by 85% within the next 15 years. So by, by 2036. That's a very aggressive phase down schedule. And um, the AIM Act gives the U.S. 
EPA the authority to regulate HFCs. And they have uh, really three mechanisms or three programs to do that. Um, One is through a a phase down of the production and consumption of HFCs. And so here what this looks like is um, basically they call it allocation. So the amount of, of HFCs that are allowed to be produced Um, go to the chemical manufacturers and they phase those Mm. down over years. And this is very similar to what was done um, with ozone depleting refrigerants. And essentially what happens under this um, phase down is that it creates, you know, economic pressures because the less of the refrigerant that's produced, you know, the supply demand, the, the price goes up. Sure. Gets expensive. Yeah, and so nobody knows exactly because we don't know the mm. allocation schedule exactly. The EPA basically has six months to finalize the entire kind of rulemaking, and so they they have to mm. um, they're expected to release something here in the next month, but it doesn't have to be finalized until um, September twenty third is the deadline. And mm. um, so, so when we see that allocation schedule, we get a much better understanding of what those economic pressures would look like. Um, but I know in Europe, the price of HFCs rose a lot faster than anyone expected. So it was just the anticipation of the phase down sure. you know, kind of created these conditions. Um, the other thing that's going to affect retailers is that um, the uh, EPA will be able to manage HFC refrigerants either by restricting them. And, and so here... They've historically done this through what they call the SNAP program, the Significant New Alternatives Program, and it actually will approve or disapprove um, certain refrigerants based on uh, sector. So for grocery stores, for instance, it you know at one point disallowed the use of CFCs, the ozone-depleting refrigerants, and we're expecting to see them. Um, one of the first things they do is probably uh, reinstate one of the SNAP rules that disallowed uh, high global warming HFCs. So here I'm talking about 404A and 507A are the two common ones. Um, So we'll see those restrictions. And basically, you can imagine that as the allocations phase down, there'll also be dates where certain refrigerants just aren't allowed to be used anymore. Um, And then, you know, they'll also look at the servicing and disposal, uh, repair, installation uh, of the refrigerants. Um, and this includes uh, reclamation. I just attended a, a workshop earlier this year that they, or sorry, earlier this week that they did on reclamation. Um, so, you know, th- these programs are expected to have a big impact. We don't know exactly the details. Um, but again, looking at that 85% number and knowing that um, supermarkets aren't the only end use of HFCs, but they they make up about a third of it. So uh, there's going to be a big impact. Um, the other thing to remember is that states can still accelerate faster. Um, there's a few exceptions. They have a few narrow end uses like um, oh, what's I don't know what it's called, but it's like bear spray. Like you can't you can't actually restrict Whoa. HFCs used for bear spray because they don't. I don't know what the, the details are, but there's certain very specific end uses that are restricted. But other than that, states can go as fast as they want. So California could be go faster. Washington could go faster. There's nothing that prevents them from doing that. And and the EPA could, in fact, go fa- co- accelerate at a faster pace than what the Kigali schedule or, you know, what, what, what um, the AIM Act 
uh, signed on to. So, mm. so it's just a lot of unknowns. Um, you know, a lot of retailers we work with are, are very nervous about their existing stores. Like I said, it's 38,000 of them total um, that, that will have to, in one way, shape, or form, be impacted by these regulations. Yeah. So the, so the rulemaking is going to kind of be carried on through this year, at, at least by September, but maybe sooner. And then, but we simultaneously also have to ratify the Kigali Amendment but those kind of go hand in hand with with each other in terms of what the targets are. Actually, we don't need the Kigali Amendment. That's more of like a what's it called? You know, political kind of a, a okay in name only. It would be a, sure. a, us showing a good example to the world and and put you know it's part of a um, I think the new administration's goal around showing leadership in this space. Um, but but actually, we don't need to sign the Kigali Amendment because the AIM Act takes all of the requirements under that amendment and gives the EPA the authority to put them into play. So um, so that would just be a sort of formality to sign the Kigali Amendment. Yep. Got it. So the thing I'm encouraged about, again, I, I don't mean to keep just looking to Europe, but it's like other parts of the world have figured this out. Um, and they don't yeah. have the same issues that we do here. And, you know, John, I don't know how um, your CO2 system has been performing, but a really big focus for the retailers we work with is around energy performance. And when I talk to manufacturers and retailers in Europe, they just don't have the same concerns around um, energy performance. They're seeing that, you know, the, the, their natural refrigerant systems are on par or better um, than their HFC systems. And that's just not the case in the US here. And it's, I think, a function, again, of the lack of technology. We haven't figured out how to optimize some of these things. Um, but but there's a potential there. It's not in You don't have to use more energy with natural refrigerants, but that's the reality that a lot of grocers are dealing with. Yeah. I mean, that's what we've heard is there's a, you know, an uptick in energy usage with the CO2 systems. You know, that can be a function of climate and a lot of other factors. So it, it depends on where and kind of, you know, the size of the system, how it's being used, that kind of thing. And then the maintenance of it certainly has an effect on it. Yeah. Have, John, have you run it, heard of or run into any um, sort of operational or maintenance challenges thus far? I know they're still pretty new, but. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a, a learning curve and some adjustments we've had to, to make along the way. Um, you know, we've had trouble with refrigerant coming back as a liquid and washing out the compressors in a couple of projects. And, you know, we've figured out kind of, op well, modifications to the rack to take care of those issues. And, um, you know, we're, we're just getting those implemented now. Um you know, we've had one system that uh, developed a crack in one of the pipes and lost the entire charge. That was interesting. <laughs> um, you know, so there is dealing with a high pressure gas like this is it's a little more finicky um, than the standard refrigerants. You know, if I look at our stores out there, um, you know, the ones with conventional refrigerants are um, they don't we don't have as many issues. And that may be, you know, a lot of factors, um, you know, from maintenance to um to, uh, you know, the, the tech's familiarity with the systems and kind of the, you know, tried and true technology that that's there. Um, so, 
you know, it, it has been a learning curve. There have been issues, but, you know, we look forward to, to working those out. And certainly with every store we, we put in, you know, we, we look back at our list of issues and we make sure we're accounting for those and, um, and move forward. John, when you mentioned the, the crack, was that a piping crack or where was the. Yeah, it was in, um, in one of the CO, well, in the CO2, um, in the compressor, um, there was a, you know, a copper pipe and, you know, it was fatigue on the copper pipe from vibrations within the, the compressor rack, uh, caused it to rupture. And, uh, you know, luckily it happened, you know, in a, in a place and in a context where no one was affected, it was scary, but, um, you know, for the few occupants who were in the store, but, um, that was about it. You know, it's, you know, it's being CO2, it's, it's pretty, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's not much harm that can come of it if it's installed correctly and it's not in a confined space. I'll add that. Yeah. Yeah. I I ask because, um, uh, one of the things, another thing our retailers are thinking about is how to reduce emissions from your existing stores. So in the meantime, Mm -hmm. before you transition anything, one of the best ways you can reduce your carbon footprint is to reduce your leaks, right? And you don't want mm-hmm. to be leaking. Nobody wants to be leaking, but but it happens. And so um, we have a retailer group that's working on kind of a best practices or a, a equipment spec that could be more broadly adopted that would help to reduce leaks in, in HFC systems, but also CO2. And one of the, th- the weirdest things that came up, one of the retailers brought up they've been looking into is more, they're seeing more cracks in their copper piping and corrosion mm. in the po- copper piping. And this, the way that they studied it and, and kind of um, narrowed down the causes, they think it's coming from the increased use of uh, cleaning products in the store. So again, the mm. pandemic, COVID, mm. um, there's this focus on sanitation and, and cleaning everything. And wow. so they're using these very um, potent cleaning products that have a high mm. amount of chlorides. And so they think that that's um, for certain types of copper piping, they're trying to like triangulate and figure out if it's one manufacturer or what, but they're seeing more instances of corrosion in the copper piping. Um, So just so we're we're certainly seeing in other areas, you know, we're, we're uh, um, really just corroding our shopping carts by, you Mm. know, all the sanitizing we're doing on them. So it's amazing, you know, the effect that some of these chemicals have you know, on the, on the shopping carts or in the metal in the shopping carts. So I, I would imagine that the same is true for your building systems as well. Uh, Danielle, you mentioned, uh, I think, uh, roughly a third of the um, kind of HFC impact is from uh, grocery in terms of a yet end use. And, and maybe we'll just put bear spray at like 0.5 uh, for kicks, what are the other uh, big, um, big end uses? And do you deal with those um, end users? So um, the other major end use that probably makes up more like 40%, um, and I'm giving you really rough numbers because they're going to change sure. depending on, I think the last time we did this analysis was a few years back, so I'm sure it's changed, but um, air conditioning. Uh, is another major end use. And here you may have seen, or if you're paying attention to kind of um, uh, energy policy, there's this dynamic where um, there's a very, uh, there's, so a lot of utilities because, and states are setting, um, you know, clean energy 
goals, right? Targets around mm-hmm. um, renew- reducing or decarbonizing their grid um, and energy sources. And so because of that, they're looking at um, you know heat pumps as a potential solution, uh, switching from your typical you know AC unit to a heat pump in residential and commercial settings. The problem is that you know heat pumps uh, solve the problem and get you to kind of electrify or get you off of of natural gas, right. um, but they use very high global warming potential refrigerants. And so, again, trading one disaster for another, you're you're okay. You're offsetting your greenhouse gas emissions from your natural gas and going to electric and being able to clean up the grid. But now you've just, you know, doubled the amount of emissions through the use of the high global warming potential refrigerant. So AC, it's, it's, um, it's a challenging space. We don't work in that space um, besides, you know, just coordinating where we can or, or supporting where we can. There's not really like a, a nonprofit in that area that's leading the charge the way we are. And you know right. the the thing about when I when I'm talking about supermarkets, I can I can say there's 38,000 of them, and I can probably get you know 20 guys in a room, and that represents like 80 percent of the grocery stores in the, the U.S. You know, it's yeah. um, uh, but when you're talking about air conditioning, I mean I don't even know how many mil- I I don't know how many millions of units there are. Um, you're talking about consumer preferences, you know, but you know. Um, your home and your building. I mean, there's just so much that goes into that. And on top of it, as far as I understand, there really aren't straightforward solutions that use natural refrigerants. Um, I, I think even Europe is having some trouble in this area, despite their attempts to, you know, very quickly get out of HFCs altogether. Uh, and, and again, I'm not the expert here, but as far as I understand, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, let's use CO2 or propane. There's a, a lot of more challenges there. Um, you know, I, I myself was looking into getting a, a heat pump unit and, you know, there's there's nothing on the market right now that's even lower GWP um, or low enough to really make an impact. So so that's, that's, that's a challenging space and there's a lot of trade-offs there. Um, and looking at supermarkets, you know, it, it's more straightforward in many ways. And, and, and it's not by any means straightforward, but I mean, as far as like there are solutions that we can like wrap our minds around, like we can get our contractors trained, we can bring more technologies to market, we can reduce costs, you know, all of these things are doable. Um, the AC problem. Yeah. That's a, a big one. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, that's great. And speaks to your organization's uh, kind of power in, in being able to bring together, um, bring together that group and, and, you know, do great policy work, like you mentioned in uh, California. So kudos for, for rallying uh, folks. Well, uh, I'm curious as to what you thought were some good resources out there, Danielle you know, for improving how, how we do our, our systems? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, we, we have a few resources that we've um, put together on our, through our website that are, are free to access. Mm-hmm. So we have a um, natural refrigerants technology library, and that's really a series of presentations from manufacturers, uh, you know, just basically answering the question, what technologies are available today? Um, you know, I think in terms of 
who's kind of leading the way or doing um, doing the best. You know, I uh, Aldi uh, comes to mind because they actually mm. were one of the first to make CO two standard CO two um, new systems standard and um, have the most number of of CO two systems out there. Uh, that doesn't mean they're still not learning themselves. You know, they're still trying to like evolve and they haven't figured out the perfect mm-hmm. um, system yet. So it's all a kind of well, learning. Um, do they do they benefit from being a European company at all? Well, that that's really where it came from is that they were used yeah. so used to CO2 and they, they got here and they're like, oh, this is, di- this is different. They didn't have <laughs> the same components and same partners available to them. And the contractors don't have the same level of training and, you know, there's challenges around the climate zones. Like you mentioned, you know, it really depends on the climate zone. And we have some really uh, hot and humid um, climate zones here. I mean, we have we have so many uh, climate mm-hmm. zones. And, and so it's just um, it was a little bit different. So, you know, they were one of the ones that said, you know, we thought we could impact this on our own and, and kind of by coming in and, and ch- taking charge here with CO2 and we could impact the market and it's just not possible. Um, hmm. So I, I would say the, the best resource we have is actually our um, retailer roundtable. And so that's a, a forum we host uh, once a month where retailers can get on the call and talk to one another with just, just the retailers, no one else on the line. Um, and they can mm-hmm. kind of get into the nitty gritty uh, of um, and and swap ideas and and share experiences. Yeah, this this uh, like technology access really fascinates me, um, and just, you know, kind of still absorbing your your stories here um, in terms of you know being able to get get some of these things that Europe has been using for a while. And, you know, I think about, you know, other building systems where say, man, we really like these, uh, you know, high end, you know, windows, for instance, and they're, you know, maybe they're, yeah, they're made in, in Europe, but, you know, you can, it might take you a little bit, but, you know, you just need to sort of work work in a little extra lead time and sure you got to get referrals and, and you know, you might have some language barriers or whatever, but it's, you know, you can kind of work through it if you, if you try, but it sounds like this, it feels like from your stories, it's a little next level in terms of getting access to those, to the equipment. Uh, Clearly there's like, you need the support and maintenance to be able to use them you know, maybe that's uh, a, a deeper part to it. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, John, the, the kind of resources I would love to point to, and, and I'd like to hear if, if there's something ideal that you have in mind that would be most helpful, but, but based on what we hear, you know, some of the things we wish we had or our wish list is, you know, um, uh, resources that point to the uh, true energy performance of the systems or would allow you to compare. So imagine that you're about to build a new store or even you have an existing store. Could you have a model that you, that's, that's, um, you know, there's been data points input that, that have to do with the energy performance and, um, you know, cost data, you know, all kinds of things. Could you then, um, say to this model, okay, I have this store with this situation, what's the most cost-effective option for me in terms of not just upfront costs, but the cost of energy use, you know, ideally there'd be maybe something about service and maintenance, although it might be harder to quantify, but could the model spit out something to you that says, 
yep, here's the, the type of story you should consider or solution you could should consider. Hmm. Well, we, we do, we've done some pretty extensive metering as far as energy, water, and gas um, in our stores so we can isolate systems and departments pretty well. And, you know, we've got a couple of, you know, certainly we have our downtown store that we could compare to, which is conventional refrigerant uh, to a CO2 store. And we could get that data put together pretty um, easily. It's just, you know, a matter of time and stuff like that of getting people to configure the, uh, the metering and make sure the analysis and data is uh, um, interpreted correctly. Hmm. Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point and something it made me think of is um, um, I know BPA uh, did a big effort mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll forget what it's called, but I'll, I'll send you the link, Jared, if you have like show notes, you want to put a link to this. But basically they sure. they did exactly what you're talking about, John, where they um, mm-hmm. put meters on a few different store types. And so they actually have the raw data available for anybody who wants it. Um, mm-hmm. on uh, HFC and they have all the the system configurations and details on the architecture so you know exactly what type of system it is and the, the capacity mm-hmm. and the um, and everything and and then that you have the raw data and so the the part they're missing is really somebody to come and analyze that data and tell them what it says and so you know at one point <laughs> yeah. they put this to our we have a, a group that works on this the um, incentives and energy efficiency group and you know, there weren't any takers at the time, but it's like, that's, that's the missing piece is so many retailers. I mean, I was talking to you know, Costco, one of our members said, yeah, I've, I've mm-hmm. got the data, but like, do I have the, the, you know, bench of people ready to do the analysis and all the kind yeah. of um, normalizing you need to do to actually get something that's usable? Um, you know, that mm-hmm. that's the missing piece. So, so yeah, we need mm-hmm. more data crunchers and mm-hmm. more, um, yeah. more, you know, something we have been looking at is like now with the new administration, actually the, the DOE has a, a renewed interest in that relationship between GWP and energy efficiency. And so there, there may be some things mm-hmm. we can pursue there, but um, you know, like I said, one, one thing I've heard that's needed is kind of this, something that would help you compare, different system types um, ahead of time before you make the the selection and be able mm-hmm. to kind of rely on some of that data and know, you know, okay, here's the trade-off. I'm going to, this is going to be less expensive, but it's going to use more energy or vice versa, you know, just be able to have that knowledge. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's out there. It's just, it's just, can we go ahead and, and uh, do the analysis? Well, uh, that feels like maybe a good optimistic point to, to uh, leave off on, there's. Uh, I think we've clearly outlined a, a lot of uh, work ahead of all of us, um, and you know this as we as we said at the top, you know, just enormous potential in this realm for uh, emissions reductions, um, but but sort of chocked full with challenges. And uh, so thanks for for helping to uh, outline those. Uh, but it, it, it does feel like there's, uh, there's some nice paths forward. Um, and Danielle, nice work, uh, leading some of those, uh, excited to kind of see this, how this, uh, federal, uh, policy plays out this year and, um, and, and see what the up, uptake is. It's a dynamic space for sure. Not never a dull moment in the grocery yeah. space. Yeah. 
Great. Any uh, any parting shots here? Well, I just want to say thank you, Danielle, for all the work you're doing, and and look forward to you know looking at the resources on your website and and uh, and moving this uh, technology forward in the United States. And and John, you know, nice nice work being with, among that. Uh, we'll just call it two percent of the uh, yeah <laughs> top two percent of the market testing testing and using absolutely natural refrigerants. That's what we're going for. Yeah. Anyone shopping at a uh, one of your stores can feel really good about the uh, carbon footprint of their shopping. And even though they can't see it, they just know it's there. <laughs> That's right. Yep. That's right. Great. Well, thanks to both of you for, uh, for taking the time to discuss uh, natural refrigerants and commercial refrigeration and uh, grocery operations. Thanks, Jared. Yeah, thanks, Jared.